Our scripture reading for today is James 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Amen. Amen. And thanks for that, Austin. God, just a best dressed man in Austin, Texas right there. Appreciate that, brother. Uh, listen, uh, great to be back with you today. Uh, we were out last week, but uh, back today. And as you heard, we're going to be uh, having our, our corporate annual corporate fast this year. And this year we're doing something a little bit new with it. We're going to be joining in with our global every nation spiritual family all this week. Uh, and uh, so there'll be tens of thousands of like-minded Christians and uh, people in, in, in churches all over the world that are going to be going through some of the same content together. To help us, we've got this really great great prayer and fasting guide, which we've got out at the table in the lobby. There's one available for every adult and teenager here, and it's got a, a fasting plan. Uh, it, it moves through some sections of the, the book of Ephesians, so it's got some devotionals in there, a space for you to, to write things down you feel like God's speaking to you or you're learning in the middle of your fast and why we would fast and all that great stuff. So please, please, please grab one of these. It's such a great tool, and I'm excited about going through it myself with all of you this week. One last thing before we get going uh, in our message today is uh, I want to let you know next week I'll be beginning a brand new series in the book of Genesis called Genesis because that's a really great word, by the way. I thought I started, started, started try to think of something better, but Genesis seems to do. Uh, if it was good enough for God, it's good enough for us. I'm kidding. All right, but it's a, uh, we're looking forward to being a great series, and I'm going to solve every problem and dilemma that theologians have argued about. For thousands of years, we're going to fix it all. I'm just kidding also. I've got lots of jokes today. As you can see, but we are going to go through uh, roughly the first half of the book and, and draw out a lot of the teaching and the meaning and application for us today. And I'm excited about it and look forward to starting that with us and with you next week. So here we go. Welcome to 2018. Yeah, if there's one thing you know about this year is that you don't know all that's going to happen to you. But you do know that something is going to happen to you. You're welcome. That was brilliant, insightful, prophetic right off the get-go. Yeah, yeah. Stuff's going to happen to you. We all got stuff that's going to happen to us this year and some of it that we can actually see coming, right? Sometimes some of this stuff we can see coming. Some of you are moving this year likely towards graduation. It's a big deal. Some of you are moving towards being married. Some of you are moving towards being a parent, perhaps for the first or second or like sixth time, like half of you at Mosaic here. Uh, that was another joke. But some of you are maybe moving towards being an empty nester this year. Maybe some of you are moving towards retirement this year. And sometimes we can see some of what's coming, but we never really know all of what's coming. And I was reflecting on this, uh, this thought and reflecting on my life over the past year on uh, our nation what the nation's gone through over the last year in 2017. And so out of that, I began to ask myself a question that I'd like to ask you all today as we look out over 2018, and here's my question. The question is, how do you prepare 
for what you don't even know will happen. How do you do that? How can you be ready for whatever it is in your life is coming next? How can you be ready for whatever might happen to you, whatever might happen to us in 2018? Is that even possible? Is it even possible to prepare for what's next? And I think it's possible, but the reason I think this is such a powerful question and it's such an important question is because, as I thought about this, there is actually no correlation between knowing what's coming next and actually being prepared for what's coming next. And I'll put it like this. Just because you know something is coming doesn't mean you're prepared for what's coming. And the reason you can know this is true is because you can just think about all of the couples all over the country every single weekend that are going to gather at churches or meet at an event centers or out in gardens somewhere and they're going to make promises to each other that they are going to love one another like for forever, right? Now, they know they're going to be married because no one ever just shows up and says, hey, I think I'll get married today. No, no. They know this is going to happen, but that doesn't mean they're prepared for it. It doesn't. And as a matter of fact, sometimes you're sitting there in the audience and you're thinking, there's no way. They are prepared. Help them, Lord. They know not what they do. Right. Because they know what's coming, but they aren't prepared for what's coming. And if that's true of them in that way, I think that's true of all of us in some way. And so again, what if there were a way to be prepared for what's coming next? I think there is a way. And I think that this passage we read today in the book of James, probably the earliest Bible, uh, excuse me, New Testament book there is, this book shows us how. So how can we be prepared for whatever's going to happen to us in 2018? Three things James shows us here. First, he says we've got to look into something. We've got to fall into somewhere. And finally, I know it sounds strange. It'll make sense when we get there. Accept into someone. But here we go. Let's begin number one and, and look at what we mean when we say look into something. Uh, in verse 22, James gives us a clue. He gives us a metaphor for the beginning of the process of how we can be prepared for what's next. Look at it. Verse 22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, if only James were clearer about what he meant here. Oh no. Oh, I love it. No, he says, anyone who listens to the word and does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So what's he showing us? Well, he's trying to show us the number one mistake we make, the number one mistake that people make, the number one mistake that Christians make all the time in churches and faith communities, and that's this. The number one mistake people tend to make is to hear the word, to hear truth, and because they've heard the truth, they think they're now living the truth. That's the number one mistake people make. And people in James's day, primarily because they lived in an oral culture, they would have come into a synagogue, they would have come into an early ecclesia, church community, and they would have had the, the Bible or the Hebrew scriptures or these epistles read to them. And even in their day, James is saying there's already a problem. The problem is people are coming here, they're coming to church, and because they were in the room when that thing was said, they now think they're living it. And of course, 
Isn't it crazy how times have changed? Oh, wait, they never do, really. People in our day do the same thing with the Bible. They hear it, uh, they read it, or they have it read to them, or someone like me in my position talks to them about it, and they read it or hear it and think now they know it. They think they've got it. They think they're living it. But James is saying, life doesn't work like that. Just because you hear something doesn't mean now you're living something. And don't you wish this weren't the case? Don't you wish you could just listen to the instructions on the exercise video? And then it just automatically happened to you, right? You were living it because you heard it. No, he says it doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work like that. And the example he gives you, the brilliant metaphor he gives you, is that of a mirror. He asks you, well, just because you look in the mirror... Do you think something's automatically going to change? Just because you look at yourself in the mirror, and now you know how yourself looks, doesn't mean you automatically get yourself better looking. Again, I wish it worked this way, but it doesn't, which means this. No one ever gets credit just for looking in the mirror. I mean, can you imagine uh, that you came to work one day, if those of you have uh, full-time jobs, part-time jobs, you came to work every day looking a hot mess, as the kids say, right? There's still that same crusted thing on part of your face, some hair growing someplace it shouldn't be there, some kind of skin still folded right from the night before. But, you know, can you imagine if your boss came to you and he or she said to you, what is wrong with you? Why do you look like that? You, you, you can't go in there and meet with our people or our clients looking like that. Why are you looking like that? Now, could you imagine if you said back to, to him or her, said to your boss, well, what do you mean? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? Back off, hater, right? I mean, who do you think you are? I looked in the mirror real good. I looked twice. I took a good long look and then I came here like this. What would he or she say? Your boss would say, either you're lying to me or you're lying to yourself. You either didn't look at all or if you did, you fooled yourself into thinking everything you saw was A-OK. Somehow, somewhere, there's a lie going on. You're lying to yourself or you're lying to me. You're like James says, you've deceived yourself because no one ever gets credit just for looking in the mirror. So James is saying here, if you only look in the mirror and you do nothing, if you only hear truth, hear the Bible and you do nothing, you're lying to yourself. You're trying to fool yourself. But, but here's, here's the problem with that. Here's the catch with that. And here's the one thing that the mirror is trying to show you that James is desperately trying to show you. The mirror and James, the word of God is trying to show you one key insight. And this one key insight is so true, but so simple and so maddeningly frustrating that you will wish it were something else when I say it in 10 seconds. But it's not. And it won't ever be something else. The mirror and the word of God are trying to show you that no matter where you go, come on, there you are. Yes. Now, you think that's a joke, but it's not a joke. That's pretty much the message here. Because whatever happens to you in 2018, whatever comes next in your life, the single greatest common denominator is guess who? You. Yeah. And if you can just grasp that for a moment, it might just change your life. It will change your year for sure. And here's how. Because you don't know what's coming... 
only that something is coming. And because you don't know what's coming next, the only way to prepare for what's next is to prepare you. You are the only thing that not only continues from one season to the next in life, but you are the only thing you can ever really change on any kind of a level. And yes, other people will come from one season to the next, but not everyone will. But you, you can't even change them. And all the spouses out there said, amen, right? You wish you would. You could. You have no control over what other people say. You've only got a level of control over what you say. You got no control over what people think. You only have a measure of control over what you think, over what you look at. You take you with you into your future. And just like taking a good look in the mirror should always prompt some kind of change, James is saying, if you want to be prepared for what's coming next, you better take a good look in the mirror of God's word now and do something about what you see. Don't just deceive yourselves. He says, do what it says. Otherwise, here's the danger. Otherwise, you'll do what you've always done, right? Come on. And therefore, you'll get what you've always gotten. And if you don't, when you read or you hear God's word this year, if you don't do it like James says, if you don't obey it like James says, don't expect anything to change. And certainly don't expect any area of your life to get better. So that's number one. Number one, kind of simple, but it's true. To prepare for whatever's next, you begin. You begin by looking into the mirror of God's word. You need time daily with the Bible. But, 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 James doesn't just stop there, stop there. He takes you deeper, and I hope to as well. Because not only do you have to look into something, he continues the metaphor. He moves right on into this, number two. He says, you've got to fall into somewhere. What's that? Let's see. Verse 25. He says, but whoever looks now intently, he's taking you deeper into this, the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Come on now. How many of you want to be blessed in what you do this year? Come on. Hey, don't be more holy than the Bible here. And we want to be blessed in what you do this year. James says you can be blessed in what you do. This isn't the preacher. No prosperity gospel. Word of God, James chapter one. Now, that being said, you've got to pause here for a moment because we'll miss something crucial if we don't. You, you think James is still talking about using the same word looking like he used the word look into a mirror and that word is a great word. It means like to gaze. He says you've got to gaze into the mirror of God's word and do it. But now when we get to this, the second thing, he changes the game on you but we kind of miss it in English because he uses a different word for looking. Now this word is the word parakipto which is a different word. This word means to look at something in a different way, to look at something so far, you actually come face to face with it. You stoop down into it. You come nose to nose, face to face with it. So far, almost like you're going to fall over into what you're looking at. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to be blessed in what you do, if you want freedom in what you do, if you want to be ready for whatever's next, he says, you got to get all up in the middle. You got a parakipto, this one thing. Here's what he calls it. What do you fall into? James calls it the perfect law that brings freedom. Hmm. Another translation says the law 
of liberty. Whoa, hang on, wait, 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 wait. Stop the presses. Did James just say there was a law that brings liberty? You say, Morgan, laws are laws and freedom is freedom. How in the world is a law of freedom? Oh, mixing in laws and mixing freedom is like, you know, mixing dogs and cats. Mass hysteria, to quote Ghostbusters right there. Maybe vegetarians, meat lovers can't have them in the same room, right? Star Wars, Star Trek, they're two different things, Morgan. You can't mix them. That may be true to a point about those other things, but if you think that about this, you're wrong. Because to understand what James is meaning, what he's saying here, about the law of liberty, you've got to understand what he's, he's doing here. James is he's picking up, he's directly referencing something his brother and his Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, said that changed everything. In those days, James's day, people only had the Torah. They had the Jewish, the Hebrew scriptures, the law of Moses, and there were 631 laws they had to obey. Yeah, 631, which got complicated, as you can imagine. And so a popular question arose. They were trying to rank these things. The question was, well, which one is the greatest commandment? We'd like to prioritize this. 631 is kind of tough. Let's just go right to the top. You think, well, that's kind of odd. Or aren't they all important? Well, yeah, but we, it's human nature, right, to rank stuff. We do this all the time, say, like with college football teams, right? A hundred plus teams out there. Let's devise a perfect foolproof playoff system because that'll fix everything. All right, just kidding. Human nature likes to do this. Let's, we got a whole bunch of information. Let's rank the top stuff. And so the Jews in that day did the same. We got 631 laws. They said, which one is number one? Which one's ranked first? And every teacher, every rabbi that came along, God asked that question. And so into that culture, that thinking came Jesus of Nazareth, the brilliant new teacher, brilliant new rabbi. And guess what? Someone one day, another teacher of a lot, another ESPN talking head commentator, asked the new rabbi Jesus the same question. Teacher, Jesus was asked, which is the most important commandment? And Jesus, when he's put on the spot, when he was asked to define once and for all what it meant to obey God fully, Jesus did something no one would have expected. He certainly began like they would have expected. He began by quoting back to them, if you know it, Deuteronomy 6, 5, which said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And of course, at this point, all the teachers, all the rabbis, all the talking heads, all the commentators would have said, nicely done, Jesus. Yes, that is the consensus, number one. We've taken a poll. The AP says, number one. You got it right. We can listen to you more now, but just to prove he was unlike anyone before or after, Jesus didn't stop talking. He kept going. He changed everything with one word, and the one word was the word and. He said and. He said and. There is another commandment that is just like the first. He's saying there are two number ones. The other commandment is just as important as this, and he says this, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commandments, all the law and the prophets hang. 
Whoa, whoa, hang on, wait, wait, wait a second, Jesus. We asked you for one, and you gave us two. You know, you're you're penetrating the bureaucracy. To quote my favorite quote from The Incredibles. All right, you're penetrating the bureaucracy. You, Jesus, but Jesus is saying, asking me for one commandment, the most important commandment, is like asking me for the most important side of a coin. There's two sides to a coin. There's two sides to what it means to really and truly obey me. Two sides to what it means. To hang the law and the prophets. And you've got to keep these two things together if you want to be a person who truly follows me. In other words, there's a tension, can you see? Jesus is inviting us into. There's a tension. James is saying we've got to get up all in the middle of. We've got to come face to face with, live right in the center of. If we want to be a person, if we want to be a people and a church that follows God in the new year. And that tension is what it means to call yourself a follower of Jesus is to live in the tension every day of what it means on one hand to love the Lord your God with all of who you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. If we do that, we're going to grow. But, 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 if we resolve that singular tension, if we only move to one side or the other, Jesus is saying, now you've lost what it means to fully follow me. And let me show you what I think he means. If you're here, for example, from a more, say, um, conservative church background, many of you are, I know you are, where you were taught and you believe that the most important command is only to love the Lord your God. If your spirituality, therefore, has become developed around that, you're mostly just concerned with you and Jesus and you and your worship and you and your prayer and all that. This is why you probably struggle or you will struggle if you're new at Mosaic. That's why Mosaic can be a disorienting place sometimes for people. And let me just show you then why obeying that only that one commandment is only half right. And let's be honest and let's be direct because people who insist on this being the only single greatest command can sometimes, sometimes, sometimes use that commandment as an excuse to ignore their neighbor to ignore the poor, ignore at least in the U.S. many times issues, big issues, racism, systemic injustice, because their faith, can you see, has become completely privatized, completely on the inside. And because their faith is privatized, they've got no response when something happens on the outside. They can only go inward, not outward. They can only go vertical, not horizontal. And because of that, the world's not changed because they're not prepared for what's coming next. But on the other hand, if you're from a more liberal church background, and I know some of you are, where, you're, where you were taught or you believe that the most important commandment is only to love your neighbor as yourself or care for a creation, if your spirituality has become developed about only caring for the least of these, this is why you can or you will struggle here and why Mosaic can be a disorienting place for you sometimes. And let me just show you now why obeying this commandment alone is only half right. And let's be honest. And let's be direct. People who only insist on obeying this commandment in the same way that sometimes conservative Christians use the other commandment as a means of ignoring issues of justice, they can use this commandment, the commandment to love their neighbor as himself, as a means of ignoring morality, a means of ignoring issues of holiness, words like obedience, fidelity to God's commands and things like that. Because their faith is aimed outward, and because their faith is aimed outward, they've got no response when people fail morally. And because of that, therefore, the world isn't changed because the human heart never gets changed. And people... And churches who only live on that side of the coin aren't 
prepared for what's next. And so if you're here and at some point you're feeling disoriented, I would say that feeling's a good feeling. It's a good feeling, not a bad feeling, because now you're, you're being stretched to fully cover both sides of the coin. You're growing, you're learning to more and more fully obey the law of liberty, to love him and your neighbor as yourself. And then if you'll do that, now the Bible makes sense. And now especially the book of James makes sense, right? Because what does is, what is, what is James talk about here? You, you read chapter 1 and you, we read that part. He says, get rid of all your moral filth because evil is so prevalent. Evil's everywhere in our culture. You think, oh, James is classic conservative. You know, he's kind of a conservative guy, right? Typical conservative church, moral evil, culture bad, right? But then you get to James 4. You read the parts where he speaks to the rich people in the church who do not personally care for the poor. They hoard their wealth. And James says, oh, you better weep and wail because God's judgment is coming upon you. You read that and you think, oh, well, kind of sounds like, you know, MSNBC, you know. James is kind of a liberal dude, you know. Kind of socialist, communist kind of guy. No, he's neither. He's just living in the tension of the law that brings liberty from categories, liberty from labels, and allows us as people to to pivot to any situation, inside, outside, horizontal, vertical, and have something to offer and to say. You say, well, all right, that sounds kind of nice. I'd like to be a part of a place like that. How can I live it out? Well, let me give you now quickly, and I'll move to these quickly, three ways This year, you can live in this tension. Here we go. Three ways to live in this tension. First, I want to encourage you, challenge you, if you haven't before, to commit to financially giving this year. Now, okay, if you don't trust me, don't trust our leadership, don't give here. You heard me say that, but you need to give financially. And here's why you need to give. Not because I said so or because God says so clearly, although I hope those reasons would carry some kind of weight. We don't even give expecting a blessing back, although that happens sometimes. God does do that. We give, ready? Here it is, ready? We give, here's why you're going to give. We give because other people need us to. Did you get that? Yeah, it's true. We give because other people need us to. We give because it helps our own church. And it helps others. When you limit yourself, when you put a a cap, a law in place, guess what? Now it brings liberty for other people in the end too. Second way to live in the tension, to commit to, maybe again, to live in sexual purity this year. Here's why this is important among other reasons. Here's why. Our culture says that intimacy comes from experience, right? We experience this thing together. Now we're intimate. Oh, but let me tell you, enemy rarely comes from experience. Intimacy comes from, here it is, intimacy comes from exclusivity. Intimacy comes from exclusivity. I got like half an amen, but I'll say it again. Intimacy comes from exclusivity. Here's why you know this. This is so true. Because you never, when you watch a movie, when you get to come to some great love story, you get to the end. I mean, they've been fighting and they break up and they get back together and all that stuff. And they was with the friend, but now they're not with the friend. They're with the person they're supposed to be with. And you knew it all along. And they get there to the end. You never root for the guy to look at the girl. Look deeply into her eyes and say, I love you. And her, and her, and her and her, and her too while we're at it. 
No, no, no. Why? Because it's the exclusivity. It's the limiting of the self that brings freedom. And when you limit yourself in this way, not just for yourself, but for the sake of your spouse or maybe your one day spouse, you're honoring not just your spouse or your one day spouse, but all the other people around you. See, sexual purity isn't just for you. It's a law that brings liberty when you love God and your neighbor like that. Freedom and liberty come. And third, third commitment I want to ask you to live in the tension of is to commit to living, here it is, other ethnic groups, skin colors this year, maybe in a new way. And I'll put it like this. Here's like, is what we say here, like to say here at Mosaic, that loving and not hating are not the same thing. Because I hear people all the time, right? Especially SBF challenged people like myself. People say all the time, well, I don't hate those people, right? I don't hate that group. I don't hate that group. But that's, that's not the same as loving them, right? I mean, could you imagine if for those of you who are married, if your spouse looked at you and said, in this year coming here, baby, I got good news. I am totally not going to hate you this year. No, not hating isn't good enough. It's not ever what God's called us to be about. And because here's, here, here's, here's then what love many times looks like. Love looks like caring about what someone else cares about, doesn't it? Yeah, putting their interests before your own. And that means caring about many times, caring about why that person or why that group cares about that issue right? I mean, do you know why? This is a total plug for the church, by, for Mosaic. Here's why being in a multi-ethnic church matters. Here's my plug. Because especially and statistically speaking for SPF challenged people like myself, it's the only place pretty much where our, I'll say my, majority culture values are challenged ever able to be refined or even considered from a new perspective. Listen, minority culture people all the time know all the way about what majority culture people care about. I mean, if you've ever gone to a foreign country, right? You go to that country, you get off the plane, you spend just a week in a foreign country, you know what the people there value, right? Why? Because you're downstream. You're downstream from the power dynamic. And when you're upstream in the power dynamic, you really, if ever, know what affects people downstream until you kind of can spend a little bit of time there here and listen. And when you do that, guess what? It changes what you think. It changes what you do. It may change how you vote. It may not. But that's not what it's about. It's about loving and caring about what someone else cares about. And so we're going to do that this year. And even if... God forbid some other racially motivated shooting happens. We're going to hold on to one, on to one another through it. And by God, at a minimum, and by God's grace, we'll see laws change that need to be changed, whatever those laws are too, because we'd all agree those things matter. Now, what if we looked, what if we looked into that law, right? The law that brings liberty, loving God and our neighbor, and we did it. What kind of people would we be? What kind of church would we be? I think we might be ready for whatever comes next. You say, all right, where then? Where can we get the power, the real power to do that, to live out all that James shows us? Oh, he actually tells you where the power for all this comes from. Number three, he says, don't just look into somewhere. Don't just fall into something. Number three, he says, you have to accept into someone. 
Verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth, the evil that's so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. To really change on the outside. James is saying there's a change that's got to start on the inside. And what brings real change in and out, what saves you, where salvation comes from, is not just doing the word, but what saves you, gives you the power to live all this out is by humbly, first of all, accepting something. Accept something. You have to accept here what James calls the word, which actually was a technical term in Greek. We miss it in English. It's the Greek word logos. And Greek philosophers said the logos is like the perfect life. It's the perfect love. Uh, It's the perfect, can you imagine it, life and way to live life. But it's unknowable. It's out there. It's real, but you can't ever see it and can't ever touch it. It's impossible for you to know it. But James is saying here, oh, the logos Yes, it exists, but it doesn't even just exist out there. James is making the radical claim that the Logos can exist in here, on the inside of human beings. And Christian writers and Christian thinkers, James, John, the rest, says from the beginning that the Logos, perfection itself, became human, and the Logos is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And James is saying, if you want to really change, it begins with accepting accepting that Jesus Christ became human and Jesus Christ was and is God in the flesh. And the greatest proof that this will change you, the greatest proof that James took his own medicine is actually the life of James himself. Because this James, the James who wrote the book of James, he wasn't the original apostle James, wasn't one of the 12. That James had already been beheaded in prison by this time for what he believed. No, this James, the James who wrote the book of James was the brother of Jesus, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And this James, you can go and read it for yourself in the Gospels, at one time did not believe in Jesus. This James didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. This James heard Jesus speak, heard him teach, saw him minister, but didn't believe. And the reason he probably didn't believe is the reason you wouldn't have believed. Because, I mean, what would it have taken to convince you that your brother was the Son of God? What would it have taken to convince you that the kid growing up in your house with you was the savior of the whole planet, past, present, future? It would take seeing what James saw. Your own brother, tortured, crucified, dead, and then resurrected, speaking directly to you once more. And James saw that. He looked into that mirror. He fell into that place. He accepted that someone, and it changed him. He believed, and he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he wrote a book, this book, that's changed millions of people's lives over thousands of years. Why? Because he accepted the word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, into his life. And you have to, though. Oh, There's a little key he gives. You have to not just accept it, but he gives us one word. He says, humbly accept it. Humbly accept that. You say, well, well, what's that? What what does that feel like? What does that look like? I think it may feel like this. Let me give you an example. 
There's a musical that came out a few years ago. Some of you boomers may remember this called The Man of La Mancha based on Don Quixote's great work, or excuse me, Cervantes' great work about Don Quixote. And in the, in the play, in the book, Don Quixote, The Man of La Mancha, he's a, he's a knight, a little bit of a madman. And in the, in the play, he comes to an inn. He comes upon a hotel. He's traveling the countryside and he comes to an inn where he meets a prostitute who works in the inn named Aldonza. And Don Quixote begins to call out to her begins to woo her heart. He begins to sing songs to her. He calls her his Dulcinea, his little sweet one, his lovely one, even when she isn't. And at first she's sort of amused, but then she gets angry. She says, how can I be a sweet one? How can I be a Dulcinea when I'm flat on my back in a stable with all the men who pass through this town? And then she realizes if what he is saying is true about her, if how he sees her is who she truly is, she must, she has to change. And finally, Aldonza is transformed by Don Quixote's love. See, it takes sometimes a madman to see royalty in a prostitute. Quixote puts it like this. He says, he sings this. He says, but maddest of all, to see the world as it is and not as it ought to be. He said, you say I'm crazy? I think what's crazier is not believing in love, that love can change. He says, I'm going to choose to be mad because I'm going to choose to see her for how she could be. She truly is. Listen, that's what Jesus has done for us. He's like the madman of the Bible, the madman of the book of James, the madman of John, the rest of the the Bible. He sees royalty in us, his children, and he loves us. He longs to bring his glory into our lives, doesn't he? And he, he comes into the kitchen of our existence, into the stable where we've been flat on our back with the idols we all hold and hide in our lives, and he keeps telling us that we're loved. Oh, how can we not love a God like that? He keeps telling us, we're the one he wants. We're the ones he died for. He'll never leave us or forsake us. His love isn't going to change. And when, when you hear that, what does it make you want to do? I hope. Humbly accept him. Humbly accept him. Not just to accept it. Humbly accept it. And if we'll do that, pull into our hearts the grace and truth of the love of Jesus of Nazareth, we'll now have the power to live in the tension of the law of liberty, the law that gives freedom. This year, church, let's, let's, let's do this from this day to the end of the year and then every year. Love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourself and be truly disciples of Jesus. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Let's commit to doing that this year. Let's go to him now in prayer as we ask him for that kind of help.